Be Christ's church. Impact the valley. Reach the world. All for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke podcast. Today, our lead pastor, Daniel Palmer, will be opening God's word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear his word proclaimed. We're going to rejoin the book of Acts today, and we're going to see Paul preaching the gospel as a part of his first missionary journey, which we started last week in Acts 13, continuing down through verse 12, and now Paul and Barnabas are leaving the island of Cyprus, and they're heading up to southern Turkey, what is modern-day southern Turkey, and... um, We're going to jump into the text of Scripture. We're going to try to make it down to verse 41, and we're going to read in sections today. Um, We'll just cover Paul's point uh, as he makes it. So I am preaching Paul's sermon, all right? So a sermon on a sermon from Acts 13, verses 13 through 41. And I've titled this, Dear Israelite, because he's going to go into a synagogue and preach the gospel. Dear Israelite, God has kept his promises in Jesus. Everything you should have been looking for, God did it by sending his son. All right, let's jump into verse 13. Now, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem, but they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. There's a lot of Antiochs in this region of the world, okay? This is not the Antioch from which Paul and Barnabas have been sent out. This is an Antioch that's in Turkey. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down, and after reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Would you pray with me? God, I I pray that the word of encouragement that Paul brings to those in Antioch of Pisidia would be a word of encouragement for us as well. God bless us in the hearing of your word proclaimed. Draw men and women, boys and girls to yourself. We pray for the glory of your son and in his name. Amen. In these introductory verses, Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark the Apprentice sail from Cyprus to Perga located on the south coast of present day Turkey. When they get to Perga, John hops in a different boat and returns to Jerusalem from whence Paul and Barnabas had brought him. We learn later in chapter 15 that this was not a happy departure. It was a deliberate desertion of the mission trip. Understandably, we're going to discover this didn't sit well with Paul. We're going to see later when it's time for the second missionary journey that Paul is unwilling to go with John Mark. Instead, Barnabas, his cousin, goes with John Mark, and Paul goes with Silas, and out of this conflict, we get two mission teams. Now, we know that John Mark matures along the way. He matures in this process because we're going to learn later in the New Testament, in both the writings of Paul and of Peter, that John Mark becomes a valuable member of of missions efforts and ministry efforts to both Paul and and to Peter at various points in their ministry. And John Mark is the John Mark who wrote the gospel of Mark, right? So here's 
just in the way of starting this morning, don't let a slow start in your walk with Christ sideline you for the rest of your life, right? Just because you got out of the gates a little slow, maybe maturity took a while to happen. John, Mark, Paul did not want to have anything to do with at the outset, but by the end of his life, Paul says, thank God for John. Let the life-changing, life-shaping, life-transforming power of God in Christ define you and drive you and shape you and motivate you. Maybe you're here this morning, you're like, I'm, I'm kind of washed up, I'm kind of stuck, I, I can't go anywhere. Well, look at, look at John. He abandons his first mission trip, the first overseas mission trip in the history of the church, but by the end, he is a major contributor uh, to our faith today in the writing of one of the four Gospels that we have. With John Mark departed, Paul and Barnabas travel across, across the Tarsus Mountains to Antioch in Pisidia. This Antioch was the governing and military center of the southern half of the vast province of what was then known as Galatia. And yet, despite its Gentile influence, it had a very sizable Jewish population. So Paul and Barnabas go to where the Jewish population would be. They go to the synagogue and they listen to the readings from the books of the law and of the prophets. And they are invited to bring a word of encouragement, an exhortation. This is the Bible way of describing or, or saying they were invited to preach a sermon. Now, can you guess what Paul does with this invitation? Hey, would you like to preach a sermon? I'm not so sure. Wrong. What does he do? He's going to preach the Word. And so what Paul does is he preaches a, a three-point sermon, and we're just going to cover those points as they come. The first point uh, spans verse 16 all the way down through verse 25. Would you continue to hear with me the Word of the Lord? So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will of this man's offspring. God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised before his coming. John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he, no. But behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. The Savior you're looking for is kind of a big deal. In fact, there's nothing greater than him. Paul announces to the Jews far outside of Judea, far outside of Jerusalem, in the middle of Galatia. He announces that Israel's Savior has come just as God promised. 
In verse 17, though speakers in the synagogue most often sat down, Paul instead stands up, just like Peter earlier in the temple. He stands up to speak. He stands up to announce that God has moved and God has spoken. And then he commands them to listen. He stands and says, listen. And he addresses everyone in the room. Men of Israel, those would be ethnic Jews, and you who fear God, those would be Gentiles who are interested in knowing more about this God of Israel, this God revealed in the Old Testament. So his, his hearers have Jewish people and people who are just leaning in and curious, believing that there's something special about the God of the Hebrews, their scriptures and the God revealed in them. And in verse 17 through 22, in just six verses, Paul summarizes the history of Israel from the time of God choosing Abraham, so around Genesis chapter 12 or so, all the way basically to David. He, he summarizes in six verses a whole lot of Old Testament real estate. And his summary is shockingly not only brief, but also God-centered. It, it is difficult to conceive of a more God-centered way to describe the existence of the Israelite people. Did, did you notice that as we read the text? Verse 17, God chose our fathers. They didn't choose themselves. They didn't decide to make this plan up. God elected, God chose, He selected our fathers. There's no virtue, there was no goodness in our fathers that made God choose them. He just chose them, starting with Abraham. And he promised to bless them and to bring blessing to people from all nations through his offspring, through his seed. God chose them when they were nothing. But he didn't stop there. God made the people great in number in the most unlikely of places. Where were they? They were in Egypt. They were in slavery in Egypt. God, with, with the might represented by his uplifted arm, then led them out of slavery. You see what God is doing? God is choosing. God is multiplying. God is freeing. But it doesn't stop there. God put up with them for 40 years in the wilderness, meaning he was, he was patient Though they should have been destroyed, if it was up to their behavior, if it was up to their complaining and their rebelling, God would have just destroyed them and started over. But He did not destroy them. Instead, according to His promise, He destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, verse 19, just like He said He would do in Deuteronomy chapter 7. God gave them the promised land as an inheritance and Verse 20, Paul reminds them that all of this, everything from being in Egypt to God settling them in the promised land of His promise took about 450 years, but God wasn't done doing. He's just getting warmed up. God gave them judges. They were rebellious, and so there's this season of judge after judge after judge, and yet they never get satisfied. They never settle in. They never follow God's word. Do you remember what it says at the end of the period of Judges? Every man was doing what was right in his own eyes. So God raises up Samuel, sort of the last of the judges, who 
roams from Dan to Beersheba, and he's also a, a prophet. And, and under Samuel, the people begin to cry out, we want a king, we want a king, we want to be just like all the other nations. And Samuel's like, God has called you to be unlike all the other nations. Despite Samuel's warnings, God gives them Saul. Saul is like another wilderness wandering for the people of Israel. He lasts 40 years. He's not a good king. He does not pursue the heart of God. And eventually God removes Saul. God raises up David to be their king. An unlikely candidate. The youngest of Jesse's son, but a man with, by God's grace, a heart for God. And the Bible tells us a will to do the will of God. Paul mentions David's faithfulness to God because it foreshadows an even greater faithfulness that is going to come from a future king that will be in his, his line of descendants. And this faithfulness of this king will be an essential part of how God will keep his promises to Israel. There's going to be this, this greater David, this greater king who will always have a will to do the Lord's will. We know this because of 2 Samuel chapter 7 in which God makes a covenant with David. And he promises him, as, as Bruno summarizes, he promises that David's kingdom will be permanent. It will never end. He promises that David's offspring, his, his son, his seed, will build a house for his name. And he promises that God himself will establish the throne of his kingdom, not just for a little while, but forever. Did you know that Jesus is this son you were supposed to be looking for? That's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying the the son you should have been seeking, the king who reigns over Israel, has come. So after mentioning David, Paul jumps over 1,000 years of Israelite history to get to the point. I love his ability to summarize. So we got to David, and we were wondering how we were going to have offspring organized under the reign of God to the ends of the earth forever. David is giving you a little picture of that, but David dies, and so we're looking for someone who's going to do it. Guess what? Jesus came. Verse 23, Jesus is here. In Jesus, God has finished what he started. In Jesus, God has done what he promised. That's what verse 23 says. Of this man, what man? David. Of his offspring, God has brought to Israel. Now, that's an interesting statement, is it not? Because where's Israel? Israel has no territorial borders at the time. There's no land that Israel possesses. But Paul speaks to these Israelites like Israel exists because Israel does exist as a spiritual reality. These people who are ethnic Jews are about to encounter their king and some are going to follow him as king of the nations right there. God is reconstituted and remaking a people under his name called out, chosen from among the nations, and he's doing it through the proclamation of the gospel that King Jesus has come to Israel just as he promised. Don't miss how massive that must have been for Jews thinking, I don't know what you're talking about, Israel. I don't see an Israel. I'm looking for an Israel. And Paul says Israel is the reality of his God's people organized and following after God's king. Verse 24 and 25, Paul, like the gospel writers, mentions John the Baptist who had announced the need for all of the people of Israel to repent and be baptized. Why did they need to repent and be baptized? They needed to repent and be baptized because of their pride. 
They had taken such pride in the Old Testament history that they had and who they were. And Well, God called us as his special chosen people, so nothing bad can happen to us. We can do no wrong. It's always going to be fine with us no matter what we believe, no matter what we say, because we are Israelites. And that kind of attitude is an offense to a holy God. And so he sends sort of the last of the Old Testament prophets, John the Baptist, to say, Stop it! Repent! Humble yourself. Be open to the reality that you are nothing without God moving so that you would be Jewish at all. There would be no Jew without God choosing and moving and growing and delivering and freeing. Who do you think you are apart from Christ? Nobody. Nobody. Some people thought John was a somebody. And they come to John the Baptist, they're like, man, you're pretty amazing and Jesus also said he was amazing, right? The greatest man born among women. But before John's ministry was up, before Herod had his head, what did he declare? He declared that Jesus was so great, so worthy, so holy, so amazing that he was unworthy. John says, I'm unworthy of even the slave's task of untying Jesus' shoes. That's how big this Savior is that God has given Israel. Paul wants his listeners to know that Jesus is everything that they need. There is no plan B. We see that in what comes next in his sermon. And it's interesting how Paul tells us that he's writing his second point or giving his second point. He begins with what the Greek, the, the Greek language, it's, it's evocative. It's, it's the language of address. So again, he goes, brothers, 26, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God. So he's addressing his audience again, and he's bringing us into his second point. So his first point is, Israel's king and savior has come, fulfilling the promises of God. That's important foundational step number one. What's he going to tell us in, verse, in point two? Let's hear the word of God, beginning in verse 26. Brothers... Sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterance of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. That's a good verse to memorize. Acts chapter 13, verse 30. So simple, but so profound. But God raised him from the dead. That explains a lot, doesn't it? That's why we're here today, because that is true. God raised him from the dead. Verse 31, and for many days... As we've seen at the beginning of Acts, he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. He's talking about the apostles. They are back in Jerusalem witnessing of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Verse 32, and we, we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus. Do you see that? God has kept his promise by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. 
And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. What in the world is Paul's second point? Here it is in a sentence. Jesus brings God's promised salvation through his predicted death and resurrection. It's that simple. Jesus brings, the the Savior has come. How does he accomplish ushering in the promises of God through his death and his resurrection? We've, We've seen that Israel's history is aiming at a climax in Jesus, but how is Jesus any better than David? Well, David died and he stayed dead and his body decayed, but Jesus died and he didn't stay dead. He was raised from the dead. And though he has no biological descendants to take the throne after him, he doesn't need anybody to take the throne after him because through his resurrection, he stays on the throne forevermore. In verse 26, Paul again uses those terms of address to start his point. He wants him to know, I'm making a second point, and here it is. We have the message of this salvation. Not only did God send Jesus as Savior, he has commissioned us, do you see that? With the message of this salvation. There is one salvation that God has. There are not many salvations. There's one gospel. This wind-shaped team is here this week to proclaim the one gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a lot of people with a lot of different Jesuses out there that have a message that they think saves, but it ends in damnation. There's only one message of salvation that saves, and it is through the Son of Israel, the appointed, anointed King of David who conquered the grave, rose on the third day, never to die again, and he shed his blood to conquer the penalty that we owed for our sin and through his resurrection to apply to us the righteousness of God that is required to have a standing before God that he requires because he's perfect and holy. Apart from that gospel, there is no salvation. This salvation. What is the message? The message is first, Jesus died. And the Jews that should have recognized him killed him. The penalty of the the old covenant, of the law of Moses that that we needed to die for our sins, it has been paid by, by Jesus. And the Jews and the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem didn't recognize Jesus. Look at this. Because they did not understand the Old Testament scriptures that they read week after week after week. Every Sabbath they were read and they missed Jesus in the reading of the Old Testament. If you can read the Old Testament and not understand and see and look for and long for Jesus, you're misreading the Bible. Here's some great irony. Because they missed Jesus in the Old Testament, they ended up fulfilling the Old Testament. By condemning Jesus to suffer and die as though he deserved it, just like the Old Testament said that they would. They they couldn't find any reason for killing him, verse 28. Because there wasn't. 
It wasn't for his sins, but for our sins that he suffered and died. But they had Pilate crucify him anyway, and after everything that God said would happen at the cross, the the casting of lots, the confirming of his death without any breaking of his bones, they took the mangled corpse of the Son of God down from the tree and they laid him in a tomb. Verse 29. And it's at this point I envision that Paul had an extended pause in his sermon. Just long enough for the listeners to go, uh... I thought you said there was like salvation that was going to happen. And uh, he's, he's in a tomb. Verse 30. But God raised him from the dead. He raised him from the dead. I love that line in that song, his very bodied began to breathe. Then came the morning that sealed the promise. King Jesus conquered the grave. All who trust in him, though they die, will never be cast out from the presence of God. They will live Again, this is not some spiritual resurrection only. It's not some mythical resurrection. It's not a group hallucination. It's not a mist. It is a real bodily resurrection. The human body is good. God made you with a body to know and encounter and love God forever. And when people say, well, I just can't wait to get out of this body and go be with Jesus, I mean, I kind of get it, but you are made as an embodied soul. You are made to have a body. And when Jesus comes again, our bodies are going to raise up and be reconstituted in a glorified state to enjoy God forever, to see Him, to know Him, to hear Him, to love Him. We're going to have hair I don't understand it all, but our bodies will be like under the body of Christ. The body is good. He was raised bodily. He appeared. He appeared to those who had been with him for years of ministry from Galilee to Jerusalem. These aren't people that just saw him the night before he's on the cross. They knew this guy. And they saw him crucified, and he was raised from the dead, and he appeared to them. And the word appeared is a word that refers to physical eyesight. In other words, they beheld him in truth. They are now witnesses to him. And Paul makes a a tremendous claim in verse 32 and 33. He has good news. It isn't just that God sent you a Savior out there abstractly. It isn't just that his son has came. It isn't just that he died And that he rose again, but he is never going to die again. The good news isn't just that God raised Jesus from the dead, but don't miss this. What God promised to the fathers, verse 32. Do you see that? What God has promised to the fathers. What did he promise to the fathers? A land filled with their people, overspreading the globe. A people drawn from all nations, making one nation to the ends of the earth. An eternal and everlasting king on an everlasting throne who would build a house for the Lord's name. Where is the house that King Jesus is building for the name of the Lord? It's right here. We are the house that... Where the presence of God dwells because through Jesus, by faith in Him, He changes us on the inside and gives us the capacity to know and love God that the Spirit of God would dwell within us. And as we take the gospel to the nations, Jesus is building the house for the name of the Lord. 
He has done these things. He has fulfilled this to, the, to us, their children. How? By raising Jesus. God kept his promises to Israel. How? By raising Jesus from the dead. You say, well, how did, how did he keep his promises to Israel by raising Jesus from the dead? Because Jesus never died again. Psalm 2-7, you are my son, today I have begotten you. It's one of the most quoted psalms in all the New Testament. It's a prophecy of the enthronement of King Jesus through his resurrection and then his ascension to the right hand of God. Bruno says this, through resurrection, Jesus enters upon a never-dying, eternal reign. That truth is anticipated in two Old Testament passages quoted in verse 34 and 35. First from Isaiah chapter 55, verse 3, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. In other words, everything I promised to David, it's going to rest on Jesus. It's going to be yours. Now, what's interesting about Isaiah 55 is it strongly suggests that it's the faithfulness not only of God, but of God's king that allows the covenant to hold. So you're looking for a king who is going to perfectly obey God. You're looking for a king who is worthy of the deliverance that God would give him. Who is the only person worthy of God's deliverance? Jesus. Jesus is that Davidic king who unfailingly keeps the law and trusts the Lord even when it requires that he would lay down his life. And what is the result? Verse 35, do you see the therefore? I know it's cliche, but it's good to ask why the therefore, what the therefore is there for. Because of his faithfulness, because of his holiness, because of his perfect obedience, because he laid down his life to secure salvation for us, God raised him up on the third day. His body did not see decay. Yes, David was a good king. Yes, he served the purpose of God in his own generation. But David died and his body decayed. David received God's covenant promises, but their fulfillment would have to wait for a later and greater king, and his name is Jesus. Paul is announcing that God has kept his promises to Israel through his son in two ways. Both are necessary. First, his son died for sins and unfailingly offered to God his perfect obedience. The perfection of the Father that is required for you to see the Father that you could not offer the Father was offered for you by his Son, Jesus, from conception to the cross. He was perfect in your place. On the cross... He died not for a single sin that he committed. He committed none. Tempted in every way as we are, but without sin. But all the sin was laid upon the shoulders of our Savior who bore it faithfully to the cross that he might do away with the penalty, the the hell that stood against our sin, the, the eternal everlasting punishment that stood against us that he would bear it for us so he died in our place he lived in our place he died in our place and then secondly he was raised from the dead he lives for us 
He is seated at the right hand of the Father, Hebrews 7.25, where right now he makes intercession for those who believe in Jesus. You say, I leave today and I, I sin, I stumble, I fall. What will my appeal to God be? It will be Jesus appealing on your behalf based on what he accomplished on the cross. God raised him from the dead. The king is Jesus he is the God King. He died, but he didn't decay. He was crucified as though he was guilty, but God raised him on account of his own righteousness. He was lifeless and laid in a tomb, but his body came bounding out on the third day. Entry into God's creation where sin and death are destroyed and we were, where we will see the realities of all that God has promised are available to all who repent of their sin, call upon the name of Jesus, and trust in Him. It's only through Jesus. That's Paul's second point. It's possible because he died and he's raised and he's ruling and reigning in righteousness right now. And here's his third point, verse 38 through 41. It's, it's a pretty short point, but it's the most important point in the message. All this information demands a response on your part. It demands a response. Verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, what man? Jesus. Through this man, don't bypass this truth. Forgiveness. Of sins is proclaimed to you. Every, every thought, every deed, every action that displeases a holy God, it can be forgiven. Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by Him who, Jesus, everyone who believes is freed. The Greek word is justified. From everything from which you could not be justified or freed by the law of Moses. That's good news. And then he adds verse 41, 40 and 41. Beware. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a, a work that you would not believe, even if one tells you. God gives an invitation through the Apostle Paul, and this is what he says in these four verses. Everyone who believes the gospel has forgiveness and freedom through Jesus, so you better not miss the opportunity. Verse 38, Paul uses captivating language to bring his sermon to a close. Let it be known to you. Listen up, pay attention, don't miss this. Through this man, this Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed. God is inviting you to be forgiven. What is forgiveness? It's pardon. It's to be released from an obligation or a debt by the person that you owe the debt to. Who do we owe our debt? debt to for our sin. We owe God forevermore, but God acting through Christ has acted to release us from our debt of death if we'll trust in Jesus. 
In verse 39, Paul confirms for his listeners what they must have already known in their hearts. The law of Moses was powerless to free them from their sin. They would bring sacrifice day and night. The priests would sacrifice. They would have the the sacrifice on the day of atonement. And yet they were still desperately wicked sinners longing to do more sin. The law only demonstrated how much more they needed inward transformation. A transformation that God promised would happen in the last days that they would get a new heart through a new king who would come and his name is Jesus. Verse 39, by him, by Jesus, everyone, everyone, everyone who believes is justified from all that the law could not justify you from, which is everything. What the law could not accomplish, everyone who believes in Jesus will have access into the presence of God forevermore. They will have acceptance before a holy God, not based on deeds they have done, but on the righteous life of Christ in their place. Israel's history came to a climax in the giving of Jesus, a Savior from David's line. He's done everything necessary to overcome death and forgive sins and for people to have freedom to enter God's presence and serve Him with gladness forevermore. And so Paul concludes with a warning. Quoting from Habakkuk chapter 1-5, the prophet said, Look, God's judgment is coming from the Chaldeans. You scoff at God. You make fun of God. You pretend that the holiness of God is something to be trifled with. You act like you have plenty of time to delay this decision. You act like God is so gracious and so loving that He will never, ever judge. Beware that kind of mentality. Because in a moment, in the twinkle of an eye, He's coming again. And furthermore, none of us is guaranteed another day or another breath. Every breath is a gift of God. Do not play games with God. Your history in the Old Testament should demonstrate the foolishness of playing games with God because God does not play games. God sent His only begotten Son. Believe on Him. Trust in Him. And if you won't, Beware. Would you pray with me? God in heaven, we thank you that you've kept your promise. That the promise has been sealed on the morning that the very body of your son came bounding out of the tomb. That the stone has been rolled away. That the veil has been torn. And that access into your amazing presence to know your love despite our sinfulness. It is possible to everyone who believes. God, for anyone in this room who has not yet believed on Christ, God, bring them to saving faith today. Change their heart today. Remove the debt they owe for their sin today. God, for anyone in this room who says, "I, I know Jesus, but it's been a long time since I rejoiced in Him. And I'm just so thankful for the gospel. Anybody who wants to be renewed, God, give them the liberty to come and, and cry out to you afresh. Have your will and your way in this place. We pray for the glory of Christ, your son, and in his name, amen. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke Podcast. 
You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.